Good evening. That's the 1970s, not the 1870s. <laughs> Just want to make that clear. If you don't have your Bibles open, let me encourage you to turn in them to the book of Colossians. And we will re-read the opening verses that were read just a moment ago, simply for emphasis, and then introduce what it is that we want to talk about this evening. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 2. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Several years ago, I summed up the entirety of the biblical revelation, all 66 books, all 1,189 chapters, all 31,200 plus verses in this way. God says, in effect, here's where you are, here's where you need to be, move. Most of the biblical text is telling people you're not in the right place. Here's the place you need to be at, let me show you how to get there. Now, there are portions of the biblical text. For example, if you read to Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, the letters to the churches of Asia, most of those churches are told just that. You're not in the right place. Here's where you need to be. But not every church is told that. The church at Philadelphia, for example, was doing very well. And rather than being told to move, they were told to stay exactly where they are. I would suspect most of us understand that starting a job is not the same as completing the job. You can't go this fall to the university of your choice. You're not going to go to Tech. You're not going to go to Vanderbilt. You're not going to go to UT. You're not going to enter for the first day of classes and then drop out. And then four years later, you're going to show up on graduation day and say, I'm here for my diploma. And they're going to say, oh, well, you didn't finish. Well, I started. I showed up the first day. You haven't been there since then. We understand that would be rather foolish. Nobody is going to make a commitment to buy a house or a car and sign their name to a dotted line that says, we're going to make uh, 30 years of payments, 12 times a year, 360 payments of equal amount to the last one, and then this house is going to be ours. Nobody's going to go into settlement, and they're going to talk to all the people that are there and say, you know, in six months from now, we're quitting. We're not going to make any more payments. They're not liable to let you sign any contracts. Nobody's going to go into a car dealership and say, well, you're going to make X number of payments for 36 months, and you tell them, well, three months down the road, I quit, and I want to keep this car. That's not the way it works. When you enter into a marriage relationship that God has ordained, you enter in that marriage relationship for life. That's what's intended. Until somebody dies or somebody's unfaithful, the option, not the necessity, is that that covenant can be broken and another one formed on the part of the innocent, but not on the part of the guilty. But generally speaking, when you marry, God brings two people together. What God has joined together, you marry for life. Let me ask this question. Do we have that same sense of commitment to our relationship with Christ? The Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the opening verses, Paul writing to the church at Corinth there, I have betrothed you, I have engaged you, as a chaste virgin to Christ. And I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy because I know what Satan's all about. I know about his subtleties. I know about his wiles. And so he said, I am presenting you to be married to Christ. 
And the intention is when you unite yourself with Christ, you stay united with Christ. That's part of the illustration that's brought out in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 and following. And so there needs to be some sense of commitment. If you look in the book of Luke in the 14th chapter, Jesus talks about counting the cost. And he gives a number of illustrations. And you won't go through all of them. I encourage you to read that as you, on, uh, on your own as you have time. But Jesus said nobody's going to start building a building if he only has half the money to build it. He runs out of money and he has a testament to his poor planning. Look, I started this building and, and it's not done. Seven and a half years ago when we moved to the Knoxville area, I was driving around with a friend showing me in the area, and I saw what looked to me like a brand new shopping center going up. I said, oh, it looks like a new shopping center being developed. And he kind of smirked and said, well, not really. <laughs> That's been in that state for years. Somebody started it and ran out of money. And there was a testament to their poor planning. Same illustration is brought out in the context of Luke 14 about a man who's going to go to war. If you don't have enough soldiers to take on against your enemy, and he has more than you, maybe you ought to sing, uh, send an ambassador, maybe you ought to make a truce, maybe you ought to have a treaty with him. You have to count the cost. Are you willing to pay the cost that you've agreed to pay in the context of being a faithful disciple of Christ? Now, most of the New Testament letters were written to individuals and or Christians, uh, or Christian churches, congregations, Lord's Church, where there was an issue that was preventing people from being everything that they needed to be. They made an initial commitment, but they weren't living up to that commitment. Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia. He gets five verses in. He's done with his greetings. In verse 6, he says, I marvel, meaning my jaw drops. I'm just amazed that you are so soon removed from the gospel and you're following after something else that's not a gospel, even though that's what you call it. Now, scholars estimate that he wrote that within three to six months of them having become members of the body of Christ. That's a pretty quick transition. This is what you started to be, but that's not what you are anymore. And if you read in the third chapter and in the fifth chapter, he says, you ran well, what hindered you that you should not obey the truth? In one passage he says, who bewitched you? Like somebody's pulled a, a magic spell over you that all of a sudden you had this commitment to Christ and you're giving up on that. What happened? What happened? Well, in this particular passage in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, there are several things suggested that speak about an initial commitment that's made by members of the Lord's Church at Colossae that should have kept them dedicated, committed, on track to be what God wanted them to be without ever deviating from that. Notice again what he says. If then you were raised with Christ. Now when you read the word if then, it might throw us off. Like, you mean there's a possibility that they weren't? No. He's using that as a hypothetical, saying, if it's the case that you're resurrected with Christ, then such and such ought to be the case. But as you read earlier in the book, which we're going to look at a little bit later, you're going to see they were resurrected with Christ. So don't look at that as an option like they might not have been raised with Christ. It's saying, since you were raised with Christ. Now that since you were raised with Christ is that element of commitment that we've already talked about. It's the element of signing your name to the mortgage papers. It's the element of signing your, your name to the car loan. It's the element of making a commitment to build this building or to go to war with somebody or to enter in a marriage relationship. Since then you are raised with Christ tells me and tells the readers of the Colossian epistle, you've already made a commitment to Christ. And because you've already made a commitment to Christ, you have to continue that commitment to Christ. 
And that's why he says on the other side of, since you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Now, the commitment that they made was one that obligated them initially and obligated them continually. The commitment never goes away. Thirty years into being a Christian, you haven't paid all 360 payments. You say, I'm done. I can retire now. I don't have to serve Christ anymore. Try that in your marriage relationship. It doesn't work. No, you signed up for this for life. When you became a Christian, you are going to be a Christian until the day you die, until you draw your last breath. That's what's intended. And so in this next context, when he says, seek those things which are above, that's not an optional matter. He's not saying, well, you might have been raised with Christ. No, he's saying you definitely were. And since you were definitely raised with Christ, he's not saying it's an option for you to seek Christ. No, it's an imperative. And it's a verb that says this applies to all of you. It says all of you have to seek Christ now, tomorrow, the next day, and as long as you're going to live. We see it, for example, same word in English, same word in the, re- in the original, and same tense in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. What does it say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Exact same concept. When do you start? Well, once you've started, when do you stop? No stopping. It's continuous. It's active. It involves all of you. And so the commitment that they have already made is that they have been resurrected with Christ. Now that anticipates another commitment that we're going to address in just a little bit, just a few verses before, and just a verse or two after our reading. That in order for them to have been resurrected with Christ, they would have had to have died with Christ, because that's the order. The gospel is this, 1 Corinthians 15, the opening verses, how that Jesus died according to the scriptures how that he was buried and that he rose again according to the scriptures. And Romans chapter 6, 14 and following, when it talks about the form of doctrine that was delivered to us, that's the gospel. That's what's addressed in Romans chapter 1, 14 through 17. And so the order of the gospel is always death, burial, resurrection. When we obey the gospel, it's death, burial, resurrection. Every biblical illustration talking about what Jesus has done in order to redeem us from sins There's the same order every time. Death, burial, resurrection. And in every person who's been obedient to the concept of the gospel, it's always the same order. Death, burial, resurrection. Now what's interesting is, Paul starts this discussion not at the beginning of the process, but the end of the process of their commitment. He does not say you've died to sin in this context. He does not say you were buried in baptism in this context. He simply says you were raised. But the only way that you could have been raised was you were buried and you died before that. And so he's using this resurrection motif in this particular passage to say you have already made this commitment. This is not saying I'm thinking about getting married. This is not saying I'm thinking about enrolling in school. This is not saying I'm thinking about building a building. This is not saying I'm thinking about becoming a member of the church. He says, you've already bought into this hook, line, and sinker. You have already died to sin. You have already been buried with Christ. You have already resurrected with Christ. Now, what's the rest of your job description after that? That's where he says, seek. And keep seeking. And never stop seeking. Well, what does he say? He says, going on, as you look at that passage, 
Seek those things which are above where Christ is. Well, where is Christ? We'll look at that in just a moment. Sitting at the right hand of God, and then he says, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Now, what's interesting is the word that is rendered as set your mind is the same sort of word that the word seek is. It applies to everybody. It's all of you, y'all if you want. In Philadelphia, be you guys. It applies to everybody, no exceptions. And it is present in the sense that you start doing it, you keep doing it, you never stop doing it, and it's a command. It's a command. Having based your commitment into Christ, based upon the fact that you were resurrected, which is the end of the process, you have already signed on to seek those things that are above continuously. And you've already signed on to set your mind on things above continuously. You made that commitment already. You might say, well, I don't remember all of that. I don't remember you know, all that. You know, sometimes you, you see one of those things, you get a software agreement, and it's about 50 pages long, and it says at the bottom, you put your you know, initial here, click this box saying that you've read everything, and you very frequently you'll click the box and you haven't read it, have you? You've seen those commercials on television for something, and at the bottom of the screen, in letters that's impossible to read, it's, you know, it's got all this you know, uh, disclaimer stuff, and you haven't read that either. But that's not what's going on here. These people have not bought into something in which somebody snookered them and is selling them you know, uh, something false, something cheap, that they, they've done some bait and switch. No, they know full well what they've done and that they have committed to be Christ. Now, let me show you part of that level of commitment brought out in this context. Back up just a few verses in Colossians chapter 2. In Colossians chapter 2, he's going to talk about the centrality of Christ. In the opening verses of the first chapter, he talked about all the blessings that they had in Christ. He talked about their faithfulness and how they prayed for each other in Christ. But you don't get too far into the text in which he begins to center on Christ and not just the blessings that they have in Christ and how all-encompassing Jesus is in all things. Notice how all-encompassing he is. Start with me in verse 13. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. That's into the church in whom, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He, that's the Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him, that's the Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and in him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. Now watch what he says in verse 18. And he... Christ is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Now there's something that's done in this passage that's repeated in many contexts in the New Testament, in which Christ is going to be exalted to be shown to be equal to the Father for a purpose. But before he gets to the purpose, he's going to show how great Christ is. In the book of John, he says there wasn't anything that was made except that it was made through Christ. John chapter 1, first three verses. And then that Christ is going to be the one who's going to be the Redeemer. In the book of 1 John, the same thing is brought out. We have a relationship with the Father and the Son. And this is not just a relationship we want you to have with us, but this is a relationship with God the Father through the Son, showing that they're on par with each other. In the opening verses of the book of Revelation, John does the exact same thing. He uses all sorts of Old Testament descriptive language about the Father 
from the book of Isaiah in the opening verses, and then he applies them all to Jesus Christ the Son. In all of those passages, and this one too, Jesus is shown to be the creator, thus equal to God. And now that I've shown you to be the creator, let me show you how the creator is also the redeemer. The creator is also the redeemer. On one occasion, Jesus said, what's easier, to say to somebody, take up your bed and walk, or son, your sins be forgiven you? Each of those demonstrated deity, the power of deity. You could not heal a man miraculously unless you were God, or God was functioning through you. You could not forgive sins unless you were God, or God was functioning through you. And on that occasion, there was no intermediary. Jesus was doing that himself. And so Jesus demonstrated, because of his ability to demonstrate miracles, he was the Son of God and thus able to forgive sins. That's what's going on here. Now watch what he says in that verse again, verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Why is he saying that? What does that have to do with the commitment to things that are above? In Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, and Colossians 3, verse 2. Well... You need to understand what it means to be resurrected with Christ. And in order to understand what it means to be resurrected with Christ, you need to understand who Christ was. So he's going through the process of showing who Christ is in the beginning of this chapter. Now watch this in verse 19. Verse chapter 1, For it pleased the Father that in him, that's Christ, all the fullness should dwell. Let me ask you a question. How much God was in Jesus? Well, you can't count it, you can't weigh it. There's no qualitative way that you can measure it. But let me simply say it this way. You couldn't get any more God into Jesus than was in Jesus. No more God could fit into the person of Jesus than Jesus was God in the flesh. He was 100% God, he was 100% man. He was God in the flesh. No more God could fit into human form than Jesus was. And that's what it says in this Passage, Colossians 1.19, and again in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. You can't get any more God in human form than Jesus was. Now, what's the significance of that? Our commitment that we make to God through Christ requires something that's never-ending. More about that as we go a little bit further. So he's emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. He's emphasizing the deity of Jesus. And then I want you to drop down to chapter 2 in the opening verses here, and then we're going to get back into chapter 3 in just a few moments. So I want you to know what great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea. Now, the church in Colossae is probably about 120 miles from Ephesus, probably about 11 or 12 miles or so from Laodicea, and roughly the same distance, maybe 15 or 18 from Hierapolis. So he's familiar with all these churches. We don't know when or if Paul was actually there, but he makes reference to a number of people, Epaphras in the beginning of the chapter, also in the letter to Philemon, and he knew Onesimus, the runaway slave. Whether or not he was actually in Colossae, we can't prove for sure, but he knew a lot of people there. And it's possible during the time that he taught in the school of Untyrannus, Acts chapter 19, verse 10, for the course of two years, it says all those who were in Asia heard the word of the Lord. Well, he was within 120 miles. Now, you couldn't drive that like we do today, but it was within traveling distance, so he may have been there. But he's concerned about what's going on in these local churches, so to speak, when he was in that particular region. And he's got a concern about what's going on there and Laodicea. He says, I want your hearts to be encouraged. I want your souls to be knit together. I want you to have all of these riches that God's providing for you. I want you to understand the wisdom and the mystery of the wisdom, always revealed in the context of the scriptures. And then he's going to talk about why he's so concerned about them being built up. Drop down to verse 8. Beware. 
lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of man, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, he says the same sort of thing that he says here, that Paul said in the passage we cited before in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the opening verses, I have presented you as a chaste virgin to Christ. I don't want anybody to pull you away from Christ, because I know how, I know how sneaky. I know how wily Satan is. And he says the same sort of thing here. I have done all of these things to prepare you. I want you to continue to bring forth fruit. I know you've heard the grace of the word of God in truth and so forth. And I want you to be faithful. And I want you to continue to grow. I want you to have all these blessings. But I know what the world throws at you. And I know as part of what the world throws at you, you deal with false philosophies, you deal with deceit, and you deal with traditions of man, and you deal with the basic principles of the world not the basic principles of heaven. And he says, I'm afraid that these things will pull you away from those things that are according to Christ. Now he repeats something that we saw before in Colossians 1, verse 19, in Colossians 2, verse 9. For in him, Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. But in the next verse, he does something different. Not what he did in Colossians 1, 19. He says... In him, if you are in him, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. So we asked the question before, how much God is in Christ? You can't get any more God in Christ than what Jesus actually was. What's the closest we can get to God in this earthly existence? By being in Christ, who is the fullness of the Godhead in human form. By being in his body. There's a passage in Ephesians chapter 1, the closing verses, that some people have used to refer to as the second incarnation. I want to explain that. That doesn't mean Jesus came and occupied a physical body again. That's the first incarnation, and what we see, that's brought out in John chapter 1, verse 14. But what's used in that context, Ephesians 1, verse 10, and then the closing verses, is talking about how the church today is the body of Christ not the physical body of Christ in which the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily, but the spiritual body of Christ. How much God was in Jesus bodily in the person of Jesus? You couldn't get any more God in human form than Jesus was. How much God is in the spiritual body that is the church that Jesus died for? You can't get any more God in the spiritual body that is the church over which Jesus is the head than what you see in the Lord's Church. What's the greatest spiritual institution that exists in the world today? It's Christ's body. That's me. That's you. That's all of us. That's all Christians who've been members of the body of Christ since it came into existence in the book of Acts chapter 2 and following. And so he's emphasizing this is where you have access and source to everything that you could possibly need, spiritually speaking. Spiritually speaking. When you are complete in Christ, you have access to absolutely everything you would possibly need. So why would you go anywhere else? There's no other place to go. That's why Paul was so adamant about denouncing the Galatians. You had the truth. You changed the truth. You continued to call it the truth, but it was totally different. It's not going to save you. You don't tamper with God's medicine. And so the emphasis upon seeking those things which are above is seeking those things that Christ died for, but that you also died for. We're not there yet. We're going to get there in just a moment. Remember, 
what we saw in the process of the raising, since then you are raised with Christ, that's the last of the three steps, death, burial, and resurrection. And it implies that you have already died and that you've already buried. Therefore, you have completed the process. You must continue it. Now, let's go a little bit further. That's Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. Let's continue. We're working to uh, the point. Uh, we want to get to the uh, first two uh, verses again. So, verse 9 says, In him, Christ, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you, individual Christians in the church at Colossae, and the same thing would apply to any Christians at any congregation in the New Testament times, as well as today. We are complete in him, lacking nothing, lacking nothing, who is the head of all principality and power. Now watch. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Well, how do you do that? How do you do physical circumcision, the cutting off of flesh, without hands? Something has to be different. No, that's exactly right. Watch what he says. By putting off, remember, we've already died. By putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So in this particular passage that we just read, he shows how what we read in Colossians chapter 3 is just a summation of it. Seeing then that you've raised with Christ. Well, here he says you're raised with Christ. But he also says you died with Christ and you were buried with Christ in baptism. In effect, he says, don't you know what you signed on to do when you were baptized in Christ for the mission of your sins? Don't you know that in that singular act, you made a lifelong commitment saying, I will forever be faithful to you. I will forever set my mind on things that relate to you. That's the commitment that I make. Now, this is not the only time that he brings in baptism in a way that looks like it appears out of nowhere. Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 and 27, he does the same thing. He says, you're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Well, that looks like a very weird passage to bring in the middle of the Galatian letter. You've got six chapters, you're chapter 3, right at the very end. Why does he bring in baptism all of a sudden? Because he reminds them, this is the commitment that you've already made. And the re reference to baptism is a reference to their death to sin, their burial in Christ in water, and their resurrection, walking in this life, all of which anticipates a life of renewal from that point on that should never change, that should never go back to where the, what you used to be, that you've started this process and you're not going to end that process. So he brings up the resurrection as part of the whole package of death, burial, and resurrection that he's already talked about. You don't see that in Colossians 3.1, but you see it just a few verses before. We're not done. Let's go on. That's verse 12. And you, being dead in your trespasses, because you were baptized in Christ, because you've gone through that spiritual circumcision, and you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, similar to the language of Romans chapter 6 in the opening uh, verses there. You are buried with him in his death. You rose to walk in newness of life. Slightly different language, but the same process there. He's made you alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. All right, good. My debt's wiped clean. I don't have to do anything. No, that's not what he's saying. Your obligation is to be faithful, to continue to seek those things that are above. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, that's the law, which was contrary to us, having nailed it to the cross. Now watch the language that's used here in verse 15 and following. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, 
Therefore, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival of a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. Don't let people get you caught up in things that aren't truly uh, going to be important from the standpoint of your Christianity. Let no one defraud you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, some of the things that some pagans may have introduced into their worship, as well as some of the Jewish uh, holdover things that may have influenced the church there. He says, that has not, which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, that's Christ, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase which is from God. Watch this. Therefore, if you died with Christ. Now the language there is exactly parallel to therefore if you were raised with Christ in the opening verses of Colossians chapter 3. And so the resurrection that's anticipated here is based on the prior death that he just talked about just a few verses before in verse 20, and then he talked about eight verses before in verses 10, 11, and 12. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world. Now watch what we saw back in uh, verse 8. He says, I'm concerned that you might be moved away from Christ through philosophy, empty deceit, tradition of men, and the basic principles of the world. But in this context, he says, because you have died with Christ from those basic principles, you should never go back to them. Why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? And he brings out these, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. Here's the mindset. The mindset is, if you want to be spiritual, you should never have any connection with physical things. That's part of the mindset that some people might have had. There's other things that are involved in that, and saying, don't eat meat, or forbidding to marry, 1 Timothy chapter 4. The assumption is, if you cut yourself off from physical pleasures, you're going to be inherently more spiritual. Well, not necessarily so. Not if God didn't command that. God never said you couldn't eat meat. God never said you couldn't marry. Those things were acceptable with Thanksgiving, Paul says, in those contexts. And they were allowable in other contexts as well. So they're creating a false system of worship. And he says, don't be trapped in that sort of thing. Notice he says, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of man. God never made them up. Look at the rest of this in verse 23. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion. If you're looking at the King James Bible, it's going to say in will worship which literally says, you're worshiping your own will, what you want. New King James translated as self-imposed. You've made this up. You've created this. It's the doctrines of men. But watch what he says about it. It's false humility, neglect of the body, but it is of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. And if it's of no value against the indulgence of the sins of the flesh, then engaging in it or not engaging in it doesn't do you one bit of good, spiritually speaking. And it's in that context, he repeats the premise that we saw at least twice before in Colossians 2, you're raised with Christ. Because you died with Christ. Because you were buried with Christ. So where should your mind be? With Christ. What you should be thinking? Christ-like things. What should you be doing? What Christ would have you to do? If you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. We live in a very troubling world. And it's tempting to think the world's never been this bad. But if you read Romans chapter 1, 
you'll see the word was just as bad, if not worse, than some of the things that we're experiencing today. The world's always been filled with sin. And God has called us to be different. And God's call for us to be different involves not only doing different things, but doing different things for different reasons because of the, very, because of the different set of principles that we follow. We don't assume that this world is all that there is. We assume that there's something above and beyond this world. And that this world's creator is also this world's redeemer. That's the argument that's made in Colossians chapter 1. By him all things were made, by him all things consist. And by the way, he who is preeminent over all things is also head over the church, which is his body. And you are complete in him, Colossians 2, 8, 9. And so God wants us to look at the world a different way. And because we look at the world a different way, God wants us to live a different way. Now, the rest of this passage, I'm not going to go into the detail, but he says, because of the way that you've lived, you need to put to death these particular parts of your life. Mortify them. Put them to death. Don't be involved in them anymore. Reminded of the passage we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, and he lists all of these sins, starting in verse 9 through verse 11, and he says, such were some of you. But you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified, you're made clean by the blood of Christ. You're not those things anymore. When we became members of the body of Christ, hopefully we started a process that's never ended in which we continually think about spiritual things. We continue to speak about spiritual things and we continually act spiritual things in our, out in our lives and we're not going to regress and go back to anything else other than that. And that that's where our mind is all of the time. When we look for the wisdom that God wants us to have and we look for the things that God wants us to focus on, are we looking at the Word or are we looking at the world? He's warned already multiple times in this context against the basic principles of the world, against false traditions, against empty deceit, against false philosophies, against things that people would have you to buy into that will corrupt your soul rather than create a better soul who is going to uh, be uh, honoring God in everything they do. So... Because we've been resurrected with Christ, going back to what happened when we became members of the body of Christ, when we were obedient to the gospel, then our minds are going to change. We're going to bring every thought captive to Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 10, the opening verses. And we're going to do our dead level best to make sure that that's what people see in us. I started with this a few moments ago. That there's a sense in which everything that's brought out in the Bible can be summed up in this way. God says, here's where you are. Here's where you need to be. Move. If you are what God wants you to be, fine, stay there, like he said to the church at Philadelphia. When he writes to Christians in Colossae, he's very commending of things that they've been doing at the beginning of the epistle, but he warns them, starting in Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 and following, he has an issue about what's going on in Laodicea and with them. I know where you are, but I also know what your temptations are. He could write to the church at McMinnville and say the same sort of thing, church at Bobby Branch. I know who you are, I know your labor of love, I know your faith, I know your works, I know that you don't like these sins and so forth, kind of like what he does to the seven churches of Asia, but what would he say about where our minds are? What would he say about whether or not we've got our minds truly set on those things or above, and are we seeking them initially, continually, and perpetually, never ever moving away from those things? I don't know that, because I don't read hearts and minds like God does, and I know what God has revealed to this congregation here. We need to think lofty things. I don't mean things that are impossible. I'm not talking about making millions of dollars. I'm not talking about being rich. I'm not talking about receiving accolades 
uh, of man. I'm not uh, talking about accumulation of stuff or, or property or anything like that. But we need to think lofty thoughts where Christ sits at the right hand of God. Do we aspire to be there? First John, the opening verses of chapter 3, says, What manner of love God's bestowed upon us that we should be called his children. That's an incredible blessing. But then, in effect, he says, We haven't seen anything yet. Because one day we will not only be where he is, but we will be like him. It doesn't say we will be him, it says we will be like him. Can you imagine what it would mean to be in the presence of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and to be closer to them in any way that we possibly could imagine in this earth, and to not only be in their presence, but to be more like them than we are today? And do we aspire to that, and are we working toward that in our life? And when I use the word work, I don't mean trying to earn it. But is that something that we have not only as a, as a thought goal, but as an active goal, that we're constantly trying to change ourselves? Set your mind on things that are above. You may not be a member of the body of Christ, and you may have been nothing more in life uh, to pursue than, than afterworldly goals. I had a neighbor that lived uh, next to us in the greater Philadelphia area. He was a builder, and uh, he liked to build. He'd buy a house that was small, He'd build it, and he'd sell it for a lot more money, and he'd move on. He said, that's what life is all about. And he was serious. He moved on to another house, bought a house at a good deal, built on to it, made it worth more, sold it for more, and he was going to keep moving up until he had the house that he wanted. And he literally told me that one day, that's what life is all about. I think that's shallow. I'm not saying it's wrong to make money. I'm not saying it's wrong inherently to build another house. But that's not what life is all about. It's not about gaining things physically. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 says, one day when there's a great earthquake that's going to come, verses 28 and following, everything that you can see, that you can taste, that you can touch, that you can handle, is going to pass away. And the only thing that's going to remain are those things that are unshakable. Well, if everything that's subject to physical touch and taste and sight and so forth is going to disappear when that great earthquake comes, What's going to last that's not going to be broken down, that's not going to fall apart? Spiritual things. And that's the point of emphasis in that context. The only things that are worth investing in from the standpoint of time and effort and resources are those things that are going to last beyond this, work, this world's demise. That's what it means to set your mind on things that are above. How much time and effort and resources and energy are you investing in things that are spiritual-oriented as opposed to physically-oriented? Your house is going to be gone one day. Mine too. Every last dollar you've worked for all your life, it's going to be gone one day. Now you may be like Solomon, who worried and lamented about whether or not his foolish son was going to blow all the money that he saved. What's my dumb kid going to do with all my money is almost what he said in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it anguished him. Well, fortunately, I don't have to worry about that because I'm not Solomon. I don't have those kind of riches. But some people are eating up with those kind of words. What if we were more spiritually oriented and had our mind truly set on things above in which we were concerned about the souls of men rather than the stuff that men had, including ourselves? What if we were truly doing what God wants us to do and not laying up in store where thieves can break in and moths can corrupt and so forth and we're laying up uh, spiritual treasures in heaven? And you can't literally send spiritual treasures in heaven but that's a figurative way of saying, are you focusing on things that are above? And we set our mind there initially, continually, consistently, perpetually, and never going to stop doing that. 
I don't know. But if you're not a Christian, that's what God wants you to do. You might think, that's a lot. He had a friend of ours visit us, next-door neighbor, different next-door neighbor in the same house that we did to before. She came and saw us a, a couple of years ago and stayed with us for quite, uh, some time. And uh, she went with us to Bible study on Sunday morning, went with us to worship on Sunday morning, Sunday night. On Wednesday night, we had get-togethers with some members of the uh, church uh, on a regular basis in, in, in their home or in our home. And uh, she said something like, you people go to church too much. We were used to that. We did it all the time. But it was very different from what she was used to. If you're not a member of the body of Christ, you might think everything that you said, okay, some people might be able to do that, but I can't. Or I won't. Think about the investment you are making in the way that you are living your life and what it's going to yield at the end of that life. What's it going to be worth then? When you stand before a holy God and say, I didn't think I had the time. I didn't think I had the ability. I know I never had the desire to be obedient to you and your will. I don't want you to stand there, and I want you to be able to think about saying that. We're encouraging you to understand who God is, Hebrews 11, 6. Understand who Christ is, John 8, 24, that he is the Son of God. Understand that God's word is authoritative, it's truth, John 17, verse 17. And that in order to be what God wants us to be, we have to change the way we think, we have to change the way we speak, we have to change the way we act, and we have to commit to living faithful to Him and never give up. It's a marriage. Not just figuratively, but even literally. Context of Romans chapter 7, Ephesians 5, and as the bride is betrothed to Christ, that Paul spoke about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And that entails a commitment. When you die to self, when you die to sin, and you are buried with Christ in baptism, and you resurrect to walk in newness of life, that's just the beginning. What Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he said, this is what you started to do in Colossians 2, verses 10 and following. The commitment has to continue. Don't stop. Don't be like the Galatians who started running the right path, and then you stop. They were bewitched. They were hindered. They stopped doing what God wanted them to do. And so continually setting your mind on things that are above is something that's required of us. If you're not a child of God, through faith in God the Father, God the Son, through your repentance of sin and your baptism into Christ, you can become what God would have you to be. But that's just the beginning of counting the cost. You need to be faithful even after that. Those of us who are members of the body of Christ, are we continually counting the cost? The only non-reproducible part of becoming a Christian is baptism. Faith never ends. Repentance never ends. Confession never ends. Faithfulness never ends. It's just the baptism part that we don't continually repeat all of the time. Paul didn't write to the church at Colossae or any other church and say you had to do that all over again. But everything else had to continue on the other side of the baptism. Are we being faithful? Are we setting our minds continually on the Christ? Let's stand and let's sing. And those who might need to respond, do so while we're singing the song.